Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Fred, one of the pastors here, and uh, it is really good to be here with you today. As last Sunday, uh, Jennifer and I attended church from the couch, watching the live stream as we finished up our quarantine from COVID. And so it is so good to be back with you and uh, so good that uh, by God's grace we are, uh, both Jennifer and I are doing well. Uh, and so it is great to be back and uh, I, I just wanted to, to mention something that's coming up this Friday night, uh, a great time for us as a church family to get together in what we're calling just simply a night of February fun. Uh, Jennifer and I have always loved and been blessed by this church family that God has put together around here. And uh, so, you know, we thought, hey, it's February, it's kind of like we're sick of being inside, and, and so let's put together something where the church family can gather together. And uh, we're going to uh, cater in some food, so we're going to be able to come together and, and, uh, and really kind of have dinner around the family dinner table, so to speak. And uh, after that, we're going to have some fun. Uh, my favorite game show host is uh, Jeff Rao, one of our very own, and uh, so he's going to kind of lead us through uh, essentially a trivia game uh, that looks a little bit like Jeopardy and whatever. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, if any of you are kind of competitive with games, <clears throat> Michelle, hi, Michelle, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we, <laughs> we will have some prizes available too for the winners, so if that helps to do it. And maybe the best thing of all uh, if any of you have some younger kids, uh, uh, Tyler and Amanda and the student ministries, uh, such a blessing. They are going to uh, provide some dinner for the kids and some activities for the kids down in the activity center behind me uh, while we as adults are up here in this room. So that's this Friday night. Really encourage you to come on out and just spend a night with the family and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, the only rub is that you have to, if you haven't already, register today. This is not one of those soft Hillcrest deadlines. No, no, this is the day. So we've got to make a call to the caterer in the morning and get some other things figured out with our numbers. So you can go to our website, uh, hillcrestbiblechurch.com, sort through the calendar of events and find the night of February fun. Please join us uh, for that. Uh, last week, David uh, shared the first of two parts through perhaps this most theologically rich section of the book of James, uh, where we're discussing this relationship between faith and works, how faith and works are involved in our justification and our salvation. Now, those are two kind of mouthful, churchy words, justification and sanctification, and I'm going to spend a little time unpacking that as we go along here today, because <clears throat> our goal in the end is to really see how faith and works work together so that we can understand what this genuine, living, saving faith is all about and, uh, and even take a look at ourselves. Where's God have us along our faith journey these days and how might we learn from faith and works together? So we're going to open uh, to James chapter 2. Uh, we do have Bibles back in the chairs. Thank you, uh, Samuel, over there. Samuel's been working hard to get those Bibles back in the chairs. And so if you want to open that Bible, it's on page 1012, where we're going to read from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. So let me read that. James writes, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for uh, the beauty of this gathering of your body. Uh, both here in this room and uh, even through our live stream from wherever the family is gathered. Uh, Thank you for the special time of worshiping you through uh, the the words of these songs and the melodies of these songs. And now we worship you as we open your word. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to speak, uh, humbly speak through me into the lives of your people. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, actually, before we uh, jump into this passage in James chapter 2, last week, uh, David kind of introduced that there's a a bit of tension, if you will, between James and what he's writing here about faith and works and the Apostle Paul and how he handles faith and works in some of his letters. We just read from James that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verses, we read from Paul, he states pretty clearly in Romans chapter 3 that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So these seem like they might be in conflict with one another. Let me try to explain. This word that they, they both use, this word justified, it's one of these churchy words I mentioned just a minute ago. As a follower of Jesus, we talk about our salvation in terms of the fact that we are born as natural sinners. Anybody who's got young kids or has had young kids, you know they don't really need to learn how to disobey mom and dad. It just happens. And because of our natural sin, we are then naturally separated from God. And in fact, Long term, our sin and our guilt before God actually disqualifies us from spending eternity in the presence of a holy God. Our sin and holiness cannot coexist. And that's where we need Jesus. That's why God sent Jesus, to be a savior to rescue us from this eternal guilty state. You see, Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfectly holy life. And when Jesus was crucified, Jesus was actually punished by God 
the Father. Not for anything that Jesus did wrong, for what, for what, what Fred did wrong, what, what we have done wrong. Jesus died on that cross and was punished by God as a substitute for me and for you. And so, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus and, and belief in what I just described, the punishment for my sins has been paid. My penalty for my sins has been satisfied by Jesus. Here's another analogy, but Christ's blood, as he died on that cross, has now covered my sins. So when God the Father looks at me, my sins have been covered by Christ's blood, so God doesn't see my sins anymore. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so that's where this legal term of justified comes into play. Legally, before God, I am justified. I have been declared righteous. Maybe you've heard this expression to help you understand what the word justified means. It's, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's this justification that comes by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus. Now, back to James and Paul. It, it's really fascinating. as They lay out their case around these verses that I just read to you. They both point to Abraham as an illustration, and they both quote the exact same verse from way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, here's the question. Was Abraham justified by faith apart from works, as Paul says, or was he justified by his works and not by faith alone, as James says. You with me so far? How do we untangle this? Well, I was doing a lot of reading on this, and I came upon this really wonderful analogy that I want to share with you. You see, here it seems that at first, James and Paul are fighting against one another toe-to-toe. But as it turns out, they are not fighting toe-to-toe. They are actually fighting back-to-back. They're fighting actually two different enemy camps, if you will. You see, in the context that Paul is writing, he is fighting against those who believed that they could earn this justification and salvation by doing the works of the Jewish law. James, on the other hand, is fighting against those who believed that that faith was all they needed, that that works were simply unnecessary, they were fluff, so why even worry about or do them anyways? In both of these cases, this word justified is the same word, but Paul and James are using it slightly differently to fit their context, to fit their audience in the issue that they're describing. Paul is using this word justified as we've already described, to be legally declared righteous before God. And in this sense, we are absolutely justified apart from our works. There is nothing that we did or could possibly do to earn Christ's righteousness. 
James is using this word justified just a little bit differently. He's using it to mean demonstrated or authenticated, saying that a person's works are actually their demonstrated righteousness. So we have declared righteousness by faith from Paul, and we have demonstrated righteousness by works from James. So we're going to talk about today, James is going to be really clear that, that faith and works work together. You cannot separate the two and still have authentic faith. But what about Paul? Well, believe it or not, Paul, in the same way, was also very, very clear about this inseparable nation between, or nature between faith and works together. Maybe you've heard of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let's just start there, right? Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's consistent from what we've seen from Romans chapter 3. The next verse brings them together. Verse 10, Paul says, For we are... His workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should live our lives in these good works. So what Paul is saying is that we are God's masterpiece. We are saved by grace through faith, but this is not a useless faith without works, as James is going to describe But this is a gift of faith that we have been given for the purpose of these good works that ultimately demonstrate the authenticity, the realness, the genuineness of this faith and God's workmanship in us. So that's my best effort to try to take what seem to be in conflict with one another and to bring them together to say it's actually very much in harmony with each other. And if you have any questions on this, I just encourage you to email Tyler at hbclife.com. And he will, he's not in the room, I don't think, so I'm, I'm, that's good. But, um, but hopefully that is a little bit more clear, and as we go through James, I think you'll see this even better. Let's go back to James chapter 2 then. Kind of the big idea that I'd like to unpack today is that James warns us about the inseparable relationship between faith and works, both of which are essential to this authentic, living, saving faith. One without the other leads to death. So we're going to kind of walk through this passage today and and, uh, break it down into the four different characters that we see James using to illustrate this relationship between faith and works. The four characters are this this dude named someone, and we're talking about demons, Abraham, and a woman named Rahab. So first, let's begin with someone. James writes, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, we've probably all encountered this dude, someone, (laughs) at some point in time in our life. Someone who's a contrarian, someone who likes to take something and kind of push the issue to its limit. 
And here, someone is trying to pull faith and works apart. He's arguing that they can be separated from each other and each can have merit on its own without the other. Someone here also says, I believe that God is one. And someone is resting their eternal destiny, their eternal future on this statement alone. I believe that God is one. Now, that particular statement, this this God is one, was something that would have been very universally known to these Jewish Christians at this time. In fact, it's something that Moses kind of started back about 1,400 years before this time. And maybe, I don't know if this would be a real good example, but in our world today, maybe in our church world, a lot of times we would say something like, well, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Okay, something that maybe we've heard a lot and is a true statement, uh, that's the same as what this God is one was like for these folks at this time. And so someone is arguing that because they believe this, because they believe that God is one, this qualifies then as this authentic, authentic, living, saving faith, separate from any kinds of works. Well, James then points someone to demons as a comparison of, and an illustration. Verse 19, he says, even the demons believe and shudder. So even demons have this kind of faith. Even demons know that God is one. Even demons know that Jesus is Lord. And they know this to be true. And even someone like someone would understand that that demons then by their very nature are, are evil, guilty, and unrighteous before God. So not a real good example of faith. You see, demons know that God is supreme. Demons know that God wins in the end. And they shudder in fear of God for who he is and for what's in store for them. And James is telling someone who thinks they can separate works and faith that if they really think that they can be saved from faith apart from works, that they should shudder too. James adds in one more comment for uh, someone in verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Faith apart from works is useless. It's inactive. It's barren. It's dead. Faith apart from works is like claiming to be saved by faith that ignores the orphans and the widows. It's claiming to be saved by faith that shows partiality to some at the expense of demeaning others, that loves oneself in an unhealthy way, that fails to love your neighbor, that judges others, that shows no mercy. It's like claiming to be saved by faith that, as James wrote in the verses from last week, that tells a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in food, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. That 
friends, describes a useless and a dead faith. And then James turns to two more people to illustrate his point of just how interlocked both faith and works are in this authentic, living, saving faith. So let's start with this man named Abraham. I want to give a a kind of a quick overview of of Abraham to help us give us some context in this passage. It all began with a promise from God to Abraham. It says in Genesis 15, "The, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. The Lord said, your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then the Lord said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So there's the promise. Abraham, your descendants will number as the stars. But there was one problem. Abraham and Sarah were childless. And that was hard. Then finally, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old, God worked a miracle and their son Isaac was born. Can you imagine after God making that promise and they go through all of these years of No children to finally have a son, the son. Oh, their anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise through Isaac. And sometime later, maybe in the 8 to 12 years later, we come to Genesis chapter 22. And here's what happens. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. Uh, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine that? Now, I realize that in a room this size, you know, there's probably a lot of people not know how this story ends, but don't go there yet. Live here in this moment. Isaac was the heir. He was the promise. He was the fulfillment of God's promise. And God says, now I want you to take him and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. <laughs> Somehow, I wouldn't have had the ability, I don't think, Somehow Abraham believed God. And so he went to the woodshed, he chopped up some wood, he loaded it up on a donkey or a camel or something like that and took Isaac with him and they traveled for three days to this place that God had shown them. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He offloaded it from the donkey or whatever it was, And said, here, Isaac, carry the wood. 
And Abraham took in his hand the fire, meaning what they needed to build this fire, and the knife, and they went both of them together. Now, if that's not hard enough, watch this, verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and Abraham said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Even Isaac knew something was up. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there. Man, I just, this is, this is so difficult. He built the altar there and laid the wood in order, laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham, or God tested Abraham. Here's the test. But, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Can you imagine? Abraham said, here I am. What do you need? And the angel said, uh, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, now I know that you fear God. Your faith is real seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, back to James chapter 2. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. His works demonstrated that his faith was genuine. Now, we see what I would just call external works that Abraham did. I mean, he, he chopped up the wood. He loaded the, the animals. They went on the journey. He, he carried the, the fire and the knife. He even bound Isaac, and he grabbed the knife in his hand. Those are, those are works of faith that Abraham was carrying out that we would see with our eyes. And in the midst of this, it has to be true that there was more going on in Abraham's heart. There were works of faith that were happening on the inside. He trusted the Lord to keep his promises. Abraham obeyed the Lord's command. He trusted the Lord in all of this to provide a solution somehow, some way, even when this test itself did not seem to make any sense at all. Abraham did this work of not holding anything back from the Lord as he lived out his genuine faith. Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Hmm. 
his faith was tested and found to be genuine. So that's one example. James is going to jump to another one now. But, you know, seemed kind of, he, he picks somebody like Abraham, you know, kind of well-known, kind of famous, kind of wealthy, big, powerful guy. And now he's going to share a different example, this time a lowly Gentile woman who was known to help support herself and her family through the oldest profession in the world. Verse 25 in James, it says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, I want to go back and give you some background and context here. And I'd encourage you to go back and read the the first six chapters of Joshua to get an even more full picture of what I can paint here. But basically what happened was several generations after Abraham, his descendants had grown and they had actually had to move from the land that God had promised in Israel. They had to move to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And while they were in Egypt, the family grew and grew and grew and grew. And by one point, they had become so numerous that the the, the kings, the pharaohs of Egypt had decided we have got to enslave these people, otherwise they're going to take over. And so for 400 years, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Along comes someone named Moses, who God had raised up to lead this nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And here's where we have the nation of Israel crossing through the parted Red Sea on their way back to this promised land that God had promised to Abraham long ago. So they're on their way, and there's lots of stories through there, but they get to the promised land, and there was one problem. (laughs) Someone else was living there. There were other peoples and nations that that had taken up residence and had, had grown in their promised land, and they needed to be conquered and destroyed simply from a practical standpoint, to make room for all these people coming in. And secondly, because these people did not fear the Lord. They worshipped other false gods and idols. And God wanted them gone to not be a distraction or a temptation for his people to worship these same false gods. So they're getting ready to go and take over the land. And, and Moses handed leadership over to a man named Joshua who on the cusp of entering this promised land, he sent some spies into the land to check things out. So let's pick up in uh, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua told the spies, go, view the land, especially Jericho. Jericho was kind of the next big city. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. I mean, they're doing like reconnaissance, right? Because they're going to bring the armies in next. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said to the king, 
True, the men came to see me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. It's not exactly true, is it? (laughs) But Rahab did a very risky thing here in hiding these men and lying to the king. Verse 8, Rahab came up to them, the spies on the roof, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that the Lord has given you the, I know he has promised that to you and I know his promise will come true. And I know that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites whom you devoted to destruction. Verse 11, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. This is Rahab talking. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you. You see faith and works here? I believe your God is who he says he is. And I've done something. I've worked based on that belief to save you. You also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And Rahab opened the window, (laughs) let the men out, they went down the outside wall of the city and went on their way back to Joshua. So here's maybe how Rahab's faith and works are tied together. If Rahab had simply relied on her faith, that the Lord was God of the heavens above and the earth below, that God was going to fulfill his promise and give the land and the city of Jericho to the Israelites, if she had had that faith but, not, but did not back that up with these risky works, if she had not hidden the spies, she wouldn't have benefited from their protection when the armies came through not long after that. And so she would have had faith, but without those works, it would have literally meant death to her and her family. And think about this, if Rahab had not had any faith in the Lord, if she had not had that basis and that foundation in her heart, I don't think she would have helped the spies. I think she would have realized, hey, these are are the bad guys coming in to check out our city to figure out how they can wipe us out. In fact, the works that she may have done would have been to turn them over to the king. And so if she would have done those kinds of works and turned the spies in without having this faith, then she would have been destroyed, she and her family, when the armies came through. So instead, we see them working together. Her 
Her works to help the spies flowed right directly out of her faith and her trust in the Lord and his promises to Israel. So we've looked at someone, we've looked at demons, we've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Rahab. What can we take away from all of these examples? I'm going to offer you three things. First, faith and works are inextricably fused together in authentic, living, saving faith. Faith without works, James said, is as dead as a demon and as dead as a body apart from its spirit. Works without faith mean that the guilty verdict and the death penalty still stand without this declared righteousness that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. So faith without works is dead and works without faith are dead too. Second, God will test our faith from time to time. Do you remember how James opened up this letter way back in chapter 1, verse 2? He said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God will test us from time to time. And when the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, that's a work that is coming out of our faith and trust and belief in God. So let me ask you this. As you consider your lives this morning, where do you find God testing the genuineness of your faith? Where do you find God testing the genuineness of your faith? And in that test, what kinds of works are flowing from you, internally and externally. Now, external works, things like, like reading your Bible, coming to church, watching online, uh, volunteering to serve once a month or so at Hillcrest, those are all really important external works of our faith. But be careful in that. If if you're doing them just out of some sense of obligation or to check a box, maybe ask God to help you with some internal works first. As you think about ways that God is testing you right now in your faith, as you respond to that test, is your faith marked by works of joyful obedience or disobedience? Is your faith marked by patience or anger? As you're tested, is your faith marked by trust and peace or anxiety and despair? Is your faith marked by works of humble service or pride and partiality? So God, from time to time, will test our faith. Thirdly, a joyful life lived by faith and works will be blessed by our faithful God. 
A joyful life lived by faith and works will be blessed by our faithful God. We see in our examples today, Isaac was spared. Abraham was indeed the father of a great nation. And all the families of the earth have been blessed through him just as God has promised. We see that Rahab and her family were saved from the destruction of Jericho. And Rahab, this former Gentile prostitute, sometime after that, got married. She married a man named Salmon. Well, she and Salmon gave birth to a son. His name was Boaz. Boaz married a woman named Ruth. Boaz and Ruth had a child. His name was Obed, so Rahab was now the grandmother of Obed. She became then the great-grandmother of Jesse and the great-great-grandmother of David the king. And Rahab was the great-to-the-31st-power grandmother none other than King Jesus. Even in the midst of these tests that they experienced that they didn't really know how things were going to work out, God blessed them as their faith and works worked together. Some have called Hebrews chapter 11 the hall of faith. I really encourage you to read through Hebrews chapter 11 sometime. It's fascinating. In it, over 15 different people are honored and commended because of the works that they did by faith. It goes through, and by faith, you know, Abraham was tested and offered up. Isaac is in there. Now, Abraham's offered or uh, mentioned a couple of times, and we see other names in there like Noah, Sarah, Isaac, Moses, and yes, even Rahab is found in Hebrews chapter 11. How about you? How about you? How might your story be told today or how might your story be told one day in a hall of faith type of thing? Maybe your story reads or or might read something like this one day, just kind of fill in your name in the blank, By faith, you trusted God and worked really hard to overcome an addiction. Or maybe by faith, you came to a point to become cheerfully generous with God and with others, even in a time when money was really, really tight. Maybe it's by faith you overcame your fear of rejection and invited a neighbor or a coworker or a friend to a family night or a men's or a women's event or to Sunday morning church service. Maybe your story will read that by faith you offered to pray for a coworker. You took a risk. Not a, I'll pray for you, but can I pray for you right now moment, even though you weren't sure what you would say. But by faith, 
somehow in your life. By faith, God is testing you and stretching you and calling you to respond with works to show the genuineness of your faith. And I'll leave you with this. By faith, I urge you to pray and then watch for opportunities that God brings beside you for you to take that literal step of faith into these opportunities so that your works can flow out of your faith for your joy, for the good of those around you, and ultimately for God's glory. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this faith that you have given us by your grace, by this by this tremendous sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf on the cross to to be punished by you, to take our place, that by grace through faith in you, we might be (laughs) unbelievable to think, Lord, that you would declare a wretched sinner like me righteous. But Father, we're so thankful for that and, and thankful that you have created us not to just sit in our faith for ourselves, but to share it with others. You've given us abilities and gifts and desires to work from our faith. So Father, stir us to do that this week, uh, to find ways that we can, you can test us and we can prove to you that our faith is genuine. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.